This is a story of a man whose ideas could have saved a lot of lives. You'll notice I said could have. The year was 1846, and our would-be hero was a Hungarian physician whose name is Ignaz Semmelweis. Dr. Semmelweis practiced at a time that was called the golden age of the physician-scientist. Doctors like Dr. Semmelweis were no longer thinking that illnesses were caused by evil spirits, but instead they began to look at science and the anatomy. When the doctor showed up for his new job at General Hospital, not the soap opera, at the General Hospital in Vienna, he was in charge of the maternity clinic. And he started collecting data. He wanted to figure out why so many women, while they were giving birth, died of an issue that they called childbed fever. He studied two maternity wards at the hospital. One was staffed by doctors and med students. The other was staffed by midwives. When he crunched the numbers, he discovered that the rate of death in the maternity ward staffed by the physicians and med students was five times higher and the one staffed by midwives. But why? Well, he began to look at the differences between the two. One of the differences was that the midwives' mothers would uh, give birth on their sides. The mothers in the doctor ward would give birth on their backs. So he told the doctors to have the women in their ward turn to their side when they gave birth, but no effect. Whenever a mother died while giving birth in the hospital, a priest would walk up and down the aisle ringing a bell. And Dr. Simmelweis thought, well, maybe this bell is freaking out the women and they're getting a fever and dying. It sure scare me. But he told the priest to lose the bell, but no effect, made no difference. But then a physician friend of his died. His friend had done an autopsy on a woman who had died of childbed fever. During that autopsy, the physician had pricked his finger. He got sick and died of childbed fever. The same thing that was killing those mothers. So here's a clue for Dr. Simmelweis. He hypothesized, and this is a little gross, that little pieces of the corpses were getting into the fingernails of the doctors when they were doing the autopsies. And they would go from the autopsy room into the delivery room and deliver a baby and transfer that, those pieces of diseased flesh into the mother. And the woman would die. The solution? Hand washing. The doctors just needed to wash their hands before delivering a baby. And when he imposed this rule in the maternity ward, the mortality rate dropped. The number of deaths of mothers at given birth dropped big time. Now, you'd think Dr. Semmelweis would be a hero, but he was not. In the spring of 1850, he presented his findings at a medical convention in Vienna, and he was laughed out of the room. It went against accepted knowledge, and it went against the accepted practice, and it was rejected. Despite the facts that washing hands reduced the deaths of the mothers, 
the hospital lifted the mandatory hand washing. He wrote a book on hand washing. It was condemned by the medical community. He later was admitted to a mental hospital where he died. In 1867, two years after his death, Scottish surgeon named Joseph Lister of Listerine fame began preaching the gospel of hand washing. Oh, he got a little bit of pushback, but by the 1870s, hand washing had become a common practice among physicians. The story of Dr. Simmelweis is the story of the difficulty of unlearning what we have learned. Naturalist Henry David Thoreau, in 1874 to 1936, is when he lived, said, when any real progress is made, we unlearn and learn anew what we thought we knew before. Christian writer, philosopher, uh, literature expert, G.K. Chesterton, friend of C.S. Lewis, says the chief object of education is not to learn things, but to unlearn things. Wouldn't it be great to have your teacher the first day of school just give you a list of all the things you're going to unlearn? Our goal this year, students, is to unlearn as much as possible. Yeah. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, who lived uh, 48, uh, oh gosh, 50, 60 years before the birth of Jesus, says, The mind is slow to unlearn what it learned early. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, Denise, will you come up and help me with this? One of the arguments that Denise and I and I have had in uh, 42 years, and it's not been an ongoing one, but it was kind of kind of tough there at the beginning over this because it was over the very important way to fold a towel. <laughs> we kind of conquered the loading the dishwasher thing, and then we got to the towel. So, when I was young, my mother taught me how to fold a towel. And I don't remember the first towel I folded or how old uh, the towel was probably a bit bigger than me. But there was only one way that the rights fold a towel. And that's how I learned to fold it. And I really got pretty good at it, a lot better than I was with the fitted sheet. Yeah, and then you fold it here, then you fold it here, and it really is better when I can lay it on the bed. Do you know that it was, so fast. It was very fast <laughs> and messy? So show me the right way to fold a towel. Now, you want a microphone? No, I can't fold a towel. No, I don't. I can't fold. No. Denise is a lot smarter than I, and I have one way that fits every cabinet, one way that fits every, you know closet, but she's smart enough to know that you fold the towel according to the space. The size of the, the closet. The size of the closet. Or the cabinet. So what and way did you... we've lived in 11 different houses with different sizes That's true. of cabinets. <laughs> so what way are we supposed to fold the towel in this house? We have a short, squatty cabinet for our towel. So if I fold it like this, it's flat. So start all over. about five of them, and they fit right in the space. 
And I've not learned that yet. And fold it like this, and it's tall and thick. And we can only fit three in the space. <laughs> She's not frustrated at all, is she? <laughs> How much do you love me, niece? <laughs> And for the life of me, what I learned as a grade school kid helping mother fold towels sticks with me. I cannot unlearn it. And when I try to fold towels the way in this house they should be folded, I have to consciously think about it until finally Denise says, I'll do it. <laughs> Which was really my intent to start with, right? <laughs> it is difficult to fold towels. I don't know if I can get all the way to Denise. <laughs> Try that, John. See how good you are at it. It is hard to unlearn what we learned early in life. And that goes not just for folding towels, but for religion, for relationships, for things maybe more important than folding towels. See, unlearning requires us to drop our ego and our biases. One of the reasons Dr. Simmelweis got so much pushback from the doctors is because the doctors <clears throat> did not want to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. I don't blame that profession. I don't either. But they also pushed back on Dr. Simmelweis's mandate to wash hands is because they didn't want to be responsible they did not want to admit that they were the reason these women were dying because of their own failure to wash their hands. I wonder how many of us today just stand so firm in what we were taught and refuse to learn something new because of our biases or because of our ego. I realize that I may have been on a journey toward a little bit more maturity when I began to realize that I could be wrong. Now, Charlie Brown tried to help me understand that way back in grade school. I hear you're writing a book on theology, Charlie Brown says to Snoopy. I hope you have a good title. I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Charles Schultz wrote that in the 60s. He was struggling himself with religion. The contradictions that he saw in religion. The differences that he saw in one religion from another. I read that in grade school, but it really didn't hit me until about 20 years ago. That, yeah, I could be wrong. So one thing among many that is required for growth and healing in our lives from those hurts, especially from the church, and I say that because that's been my life, is the willingness to unlearn and the willingness to admit that I was wrong. So we need to, all of us, when we talk or when we teach, do so with deep, sincere humility, knowing that as humans, we very well could be wrong. So what is there about unlearning? Unlearning is not about forgetting. I learned English, I can't forget English. Unlearning is not about forgetting. Unlearning is about replacing, 
replacing with what I learned was something new. Denise and I became reconnected with a friend that was really closer to me because he was my age that I met when I was in fourth grade when we moved to Joplin, Missouri. And uh, Denise's family and that friend's family, my family, our parents were all good friends. So we were kind of together there. But uh, his name is Grant Clowers. He is a psychotherapist whose practice is in uh, uh, Goodnight Nurse, Nevada. And uh, we reconnected through him reading some of my things on Facebook. And uh, we've been video chatting several times, Denise and myself and Grant. And as a a person at a former religion, as, I, as did I, and who has also been on a journey. We've had some really good conversations. And uh, Grant told me this. Our brain knows what it knows. Once you learn something, you cannot unlearn it. We can't unknow something, but we can learn something new. And the best news about you is that you're not dead. You can still learn. Let me go back because I missed this one quote. This guy, look, where, look when he lived. He, he was a uh, student of Socrates. Look, 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the most useful piece of learning for the uses of life is to unlearn what is untrue. Are we so proud that we hang on to things even when they're shown to be untrue? So we may not be able to unlearn, as Grant told me and Denise on the phone the other night, but we can learn something new. Now, we may not be able to unlearn, but we can replace. In the church, we call this repent. Now, when we think of repent, this is what we think about. Some mad preacher with his finger in our face telling us to repent and calling us a sinner. But the word repent in the Greek language is metanoiete, and meta means to go beyond, and noete is a Greek word for mind. So literally, it means to go beyond the mind that you have. To repent means, okay, I got this mind, I got this belief system, I got this knowledge, but to repent means I'm going beyond what I know now. I'm expanding. And if what I learned from this day on proves that what I did believe or what I thought I, or what I knew and thought was true before, then to repent means I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to replace the old with something new. From the very time that Jesus began his public ministry, this was his message, repent, go beyond your mind, go beyond what you were taught for the kingdom of heaven, a new kingdom a new government, a new way of doing things, a new administration is here. So one learning is to go beyond what you already know. St. Paul could be the patron saint of unlearning. Paul, or as he was known as Saul in the first half of his life, was a pretty smart guy, he had all these degrees. He was a student of Gamaliel, the most uh, respected Hebrew scholar in Palestine of that day. But Paul had learned to see the world in black and white, in and out. And he divided people into three categories. There were the Jews, they were in, 
and there were the Gentiles who were obviously out, and there were the apostate Jews, the Jewish people who had begun to follow this man named Jesus. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Paul was on his way to Damascus, breathing in and breathing out threats and hate and murder. In Damascus, he was going to round up, capture, maybe not just persecute, but execute the followers of Jesus. But on his way to Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed. And we read this in Acts 9. After he saw that light, for three days he could not see, and he neither ate nor drank anything. So Saul was blinded by the light, and I'm sure in the background there was that Bruce Springsteen song <laughs> covered by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Back, Wikipedia says they wrote it in 1977 and sang it, but I think Paul was playing that then because Paul was blinded by the light. So here's a lesson on unlearning I'm trying to learn. Maybe you could learn this too. The light is a metaphor for us. Paul was blinded by the light. A light is a metaphor for new information, new experience, a new relationship that absolutely knocks us to the ground because it is so different than what we had believed and thought before. And we are blinded by that light. And it's in that darkness that we begin to process this new information and this new experience. How do I connect this new knowledge, this new information, with my old information? How do I reconcile these two seemingly contradictory pieces of information? And it can be a dark time. For Saul, it was three days. For some of us, it's three plus years. Trying to process this new stuff that we've learned that seems to go against what we were taught growing up. Saul's previous way of seeing was so small and so narrow that he had to go through a period of unseeing, blindness, before he could see something new. Unlearning on his way to learning. Now, because Saul was blind, he had to be led by the hand. Now, this was a tough Saul. He was aggressive. He was assertive. He was powerful. He didn't need anybody. He depended on no one. But now he was put into a position of vulnerability. That's what happens in the darkness. When we're confused, we're trying to figure out the new stuff, how it fits with the old stuff. And we're not quite as sure as we used to be we're not quite as confident as we used to be. We're not quite as assertive. We're questioning. And we become vulnerable. I don't have all the answers. I just don't know. So 
Saul was led to a man named Ananias who also had to go through a little bit of unlearning because he was scared of Saul, and rightfully so. When God told Ananias to get to prepare his house and fix a meal for Saul, who's going to be a stay at his house for a while, Ananias replied, Lord, a lot of people have told me about the terrible things this man has done to your followers in Jerusalem. That word translated terrible, we see a lot in the New Testament. It's that word kaka, K-A-K-A. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> a lot of people have told me about the kaka that this thing guy's done. This guy has done a lot of crap to the followers of Jesus. I don't think I want him in my house. But Ananias had to go through some unlearning to see things a little bit differently. It's recorded in chapter 9 and verse 18 that when Ananias, after the three days, laid his hands upon Saul, we cannot ever minimize the power of the touch. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he began to see again. I wonder if he saw things differently. I wonder if he saw God differently, if he saw himself differently, if he saw religion differently, if he saw people differently in the world differently. What's it like to see clearly for the first time? This is a young man who was born with a condition, I don't know the name of it, but he was unable to see any colors. I guess we always called it color blindness, but this is a very deep medical issue that where all he could see were kind of just shades of blah. But his friends got together to uh, correct and help him see more clearly, more colorfully. Take a look at this video. Incredible. Several years ago, Denise and I put on some new glasses. And uh, we began to see God and other people, begin to see ourselves, begin to see the entire globe differently. And it was like seeing in colors. Instead of everything as our religious life had been in black and white, in or out, with us or against us, we began to see color, splashes of color. No more shades of gray. I saw a whole array of color beautiful works of art, but all coming together into beauty, beautiful unity. I'm not the only one who is in the process of unlearning, so are many of you. I asked on my Facebook page this week, what are you, you all unlearning? And I got so many responses, I couldn't put them all up here, and so many of them came in after his teaching had already been submitted. Uh, by the way, thanks to Eric, our technical director, for finding that good video of the, of the glasses and the guy. Some of these responses 
were so meaningful to me. I am unlearning many behaviors and beliefs right now. I'm unlearning that homosexuality is a sin. I learned the wrong word was translated, so I had to unlearn my original view of it. I'm learning that Christianity is all about love and inclusion, not exclusion. Big saying. Somebody replied to that. I used to hate myself for being gay. I denied it for so long. Now I embrace it and live my life to the fullest. Backward politics, racism, LGBTQ phobia, hatred. It's what I'm unlearning. I would say generational trauma, but I'm still trying to unlearn that. It is a process. All of this is so powerful. I have to unlearn, override, or transform the lesson that I was not enough. It's a new lesson I work on every day. I am loved, and I am enough just as I am. I am learning to unlearn the bigotry of examples of racism, homophobia, sexism, classism with which I was raised. Are you all learning anything new? Or do you believe today the same thing you believed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago? Do I hear 50? Yeah. <laughs> and Dad was pastor at First Baptist Church in Little Rock, where he served for 19 years. He invited a professor from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary out of Louisville, Kentucky, to do a conference at First Baptist. And uh, Denise and I attended that conference. And Dr. Moody was the professor's name. He held some views that were outside of the mainstream, on the bank of the stream of Baptist theology, Baptist thought. And I just loved Dad for inviting Dr. Moody with his non-mainstream views to come and teach. Uh, Dad was a little bit of a radical. He'd never admit it, but he was. And uh, Dad got a lot of pushback from leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention who were on the more conservative side for having Dr. Moody in the First Baptist Church of Little Rock. And one of those leaders was the president of the Arkansas Baptist State Pastors Conference and he kind of got in Dad's face and uh, said, John, I have not changed my beliefs since I was 15 years old. And uh, this gentleman was in his 50s. And so Dad looked at him and just said, called him by his first name and said, well, I feel sad for you because that means you haven't grown. Have you grown? It's not, not a question to condemn or to judge, but hopefully it'll stir up something within all of us out of our complacency. I just want to tell you all to be cautious with people who have always believed the same thing. And if they demand that you believe the same thing that you believed when you were a child, I advise you to build a very healthy boundary 
between you and them. The greatest enemy of learning is knowing. The greatest enemy of learning is knowing. If you think you know it, then you'll never learn anything else. And the goal of all learning is not knowing. The goal of learning is loving. If what we're learning does not lead us to loving better, then we need to unlearn it and relearn something else. The test of what we have learned is how well we are loving, not how much we know, and not how certain we are in what we think we know. I just encourage you to question everything that you were taught. And you may come back and put those pieces of what you're taught back together and it looked kind of the same, but a little bit different. Or it might look totally different. But keep learning. Keep unlearning and relearning.